We'll be in the first half of Ephesians 5 tonight. Um, So if you would, read along with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God has comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we just uh, ask now, as we always do, that you would speak to us uh, through your word, that you would give us the words of life, that you would strike A straight blow with a very crooked stick. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, One thing you you quickly learn as a parent is that children imitate you. Um, And especially the last year or two is my my two boys that I don't know if you saw them wreaking havoc earlier. I thought they were going to knock somebody out at some point. Um, Throwing frisbees around and stuff. You get, to the, you get to the point with your children where you're actually scared to take them places because you don't know what they're going to repeat um, that they've probably heard uh, or seen in your house or whatever. Um, it just really hit home with me one day. You know, older, older children, the oldest is always bossy pretty much, right? Especially when they're, they're close. My boys are close in age and, and our, our older boy is kind of straight-laced and does everything right. Um, and the younger one is just flat out crazy. Um, and so he's very, the older one's very controlling and bossy and, and tries to tell him what to do. And one, one, one day they were playing upstairs and I could tell they were kind of the argument was beginning. They were going back and forth. And finally I hear the oldest look at the younger one and go, what were you thinking? And I, th- I was like, where did he hear that? And I realized, I'm pretty sure I've said that to them multiple times. What were you thinking? Right? And sometimes that's all you have to say. Like, what was going through? Yeah, anyway. Um, this is what Paul's getting at as he begins chapter 5. 
imitation. Imitation. Therefore, be imitators of God. Since God is your heavenly Father, Paul is going to say, you should model your life and your desires after Him. And you think about it, not only do we have the perfect model, but what better incentive do we have than the fact that we are beloved children to this God? Okay? And you read this with me, um, hopefully. You were paying attention there. Uh, this passage has teeth, doesn't it? Um, makes us uneasy, maybe a little bit. Um, things that hit home, things that maybe we're not sure what we should think about, things that we know bring people guilt and we don't want to like just heap guilt on people. But this passage has teeth. Um, and here's the question I, I want you to think about at the outset. How are you going to handle, and this is what we've kind of been getting at as we started the second half of Ephesians. How are you going to handle the do's and don'ts of the Bible? How are you going to handle them? Are they going to be to you just do's and don'ts? Because if they are just do's and don'ts, I'm suggesting to you that they, that is going to be a slave master to you. And maybe you've grown up hearing the do's and don'ts of the Bible and all they've been to you is a slave master. To either keep you in line or to, keep, to bring you cowering back, whatever. Or maybe they've kept you away. What are you going to do with the do's and don'ts of the Bible? Because you see, we get the imitation part. Okay, I get it. Jesus was God. Jesus was perfect. I'm supposed to be like him. I get that. But that is not easy. Right. Um, But here's the thing. Does Paul talk like that? Have you ever read in the Bible? Don't you know how perfect Jesus was? You better get better. Like the Bible never says anything like that. This is what I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to separate the imitation that Paul calls for. Do not separate that with the intimacy that lies behind it. Do not separate the imitation, the life you should live because of who God is and who he's called you to be. Do not separate that from the intimacy that lies behind it. Because that's what the whole Bible has been screaming at us for millennia. That God desires to be with us and amongst us and to have us as his own And that's why he calls us to these things. What Paul says, remember we've said this every week since spring break. What Paul says in Ephesians 5 here assumes what he said in Ephesians 1 through 3. That God loved you so much before time itself that he has moved heaven and earth to bring his people to his own. So much so that he has this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus including you. Including us as a people. Okay, it assumes that that God has gone out and accomplished this great thing for us and nothing can take it away. Therefore, this is how you should live. Okay, do not miss that. Okay, break this down in three ways. I think uh, the passage kind of simply breaks itself up. Walk in love, walk in light and walk in wisdom. And I just want to go ahead and say, I apologize. I don't know. Um, This is a passage that lends itself to some great application that if I was more prepared, we could probably get into a lot of it. But I think what I'm aiming at tonight is kind of big picture. So I hope, I hope that carries over. So the first one here is, is walk in love. Okay. Um, if you think about it, uh, imitation, um, imitation is intimacy. I mean, imitation and Im- intimacy are linked. What do we imitate? We imitate the things that we love. There's a reason why girls who have been friends forever, like act the exact same way. Right? You start imitating each other. There's a reason why you meet a couple that's been together for two or three decades. 
Like, it's almost like they grew up. It's kind of weird. It gets weird sometimes because it's like, y'all act like your brother and sister, like, but you're married. This is weird. We imitate that which we love, right? The things that you love, you imitate them. You long to imitate them. You want to be like them, okay? And as, as Paul has done before, he, he says something to do, walk in love, and he qualifies it first with what Jesus has done for us. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Okay, as he loved us and as he gave himself up love because the love that has been shown to you love for the Christian is not optional because we are the ones who have been loved with an everlasting love. Therefore, we are called to love in return, not just him, but what he has made, which is everything. Right. But here's the weird part. He tells us to walk in love and he throws out this really cool post-it note verse about Jesus giving himself as a fragrant offering. And then he immediately follows that, follows that up with sexual immorality. Why Paul gives us, sets us up with this perfect post-it note for like to sticky on somebody's backpack as they leave, whatever. But we don't usually don't attach that. But flee sexual immorality. Have a good day. Um, what is Paul doing? Seemingly out of nowhere, he starts talking about sexual immorality and sexual impurity. And we're just kind of like, what are you talking about? How does Paul going from loving as Jesus loves us to being for, for us that the natural conclusion then being us not being sexually impure? You know, when we think about sex in the Bible, I think it was Foucault that said um, that Christianity's lasting legacy is thus. Sex is sin. Right? That's how the world views us uh, Bible thumpers. Um, sex is bad, okay? That's um, like all, you know, sex and marriage, good. Sex and not marriage, bad. Like, that's all we know about sex. Um, that completely misses the point, okay? And I wish we, we're going to kind of broach this a little bit more next week as we look at um, the institution of marriage uh, next week. Um, what does the Bible teach about sexuality? I would suggest to you the Bible teaches about sexuality that there is nothing on this earth that more vividly shows us what our relationship to God is supposed to be than the gift of sexuality. Let me say that again. There's nothing on the earth that more vividly shows what our relationship to God is supposed to be as far as intimacy goes. There's nothing that points to it quite like Sex, the gift of sex, the gift of sexuality. It's not given to us just so we can enjoy ourselves. There is a reason why it is very enjoyable because God wanted it to be, right? But it's something that points us to a depth of intimacy that our creator wants with us. That's why the pinnacle of creation is not man. The pinnacle of creation is man and woman together, right? Eve is created, Adam takes one look at her, and he utters the world's first love poem, right? The Bible, you may be interested, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but you'd be interested to know, the Bible talks about our relationship to God, his people's relationship to him, sometimes in sexual terms. Is that scandalous to you? The Bible talks about our relationship to God sometimes in sexual terms. Example, Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall I marry you. Next verse, he says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's not talking about wedding pictures there. I'll just say that. 
right? As the bridegroom, the young groom, rejoices over his bride, in the very same manner I will rejoice over you. Okay? Um, And maybe you think, okay, that's just like, that's like old school, Old Testament being weird. But Paul in, um, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I feel, he tells the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Does that make you feel better that God wants to present you as a pure virgin to Christ? What is he talking about? Why is the Bible so concerned with sex and how we use and or abuse it? It's because if we don't understand... If we misuse, if we abuse God's greatest gift in understanding and seeing the real intimacy that he desires with us, then how is it then possible for us to have a normal relationship with him? The implication is is that we can't, okay? The implication is that it's so huge, it's so important, it's so sacred that we're not even supposed to, Paul says, use it in our jokes. And I am guilty of that. I shouldn't say this on the podcast. I love a good, that's what she said joke. That's terrible. I know. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. And I am guilty. We treat it lightly. It's like our culture's obsessed with it, but yet we treat it lightly. Like we never know which side we fall on. Like are we obsessed with it? Or are we going to treat it lightly? What, what's the deal? And then you look at verse 5, and this makes us really uneasy. In verse 5, he says, Every one of these that he lists here has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It goes on to say in 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's how serious Paul says it is. But here's the thing, okay? Um, I want you to see the link between, did you notice that he said sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness? Like, how do those go together? He's talking about selfishness. How can you love if you're self-centered? What is the epitome of sexual dysfunction, sexual self-centeredness, right? Any regular, secular book will tell you that. Um, um, you know, but we read that. We read what Paul says there and what we just feel guilty. Because we know we've all messed up somewhere along that line. And we know people that messed up. We know how haunting some things in our past are. What do we do with this? But here's the thing. The last thing Paul is trying to do is guilt you. What he's actually trying to do is provide healing, Do you remember this inheritance thing? It's not the first time that it's popped up in Ephesians. Paul keeps bringing up, back in uh, the second half of chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that God has an inheritance. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says that, um, let me read it. Um, He wants the eyes of our hearts enlightening that we may know the hope which is that he has called us, that we are the riches of his glorious inheritance In the saints. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. His inheritance is his people. Meaning his special possession. That which he treasures is you. And here he brings this idea of inheritance up again. Talking about this. You think about all our struggles in this area. All our obsessions in this area. All our guilt and shame or confusion or whatever. We don't know what we're supposed to do because everybody's got a different opinion. Here's the thing. It's more than a physical problem. It's also ingrained in the way in which we relate to one another, the way in which we obsess over different things, the way in which we deal with our shame and our guilt, this longing that we continually have that we don't know what to do with. Why is it that we, as a people, our culture, whatever, are so hung up on it? 
So hung up on, in college, right? You're so hung up on who does or does not like you. Whether I'm going to find a spouse by the time I'm done with college. All these questions are constantly swirling. What do I do about the fact that I did mess up with somebody one time and it just keeps coming back and it keeps wreaking havoc in my life? It tyrannizes, all of this tyrannizes us because we've elevated it to a place that it was never supposed to be. And in the issue and how we deal with it in our lives, there's echoes of the eternal because there's an eternal longing that we've been trying to fill with that which that cannot fill it. And God, Paul is maybe suggesting that God is screaming to us in the midst of our struggles here. That I need you to find something in me that you've been searching for in those things. Why is sex, why is giving away our bodies, why is giving away our hearts, why is it such a big deal? Because it's directly linked to our relationship with God. That's what Paul's saying. That's why he moves from love to purity. Love is not an option for the Christian. And we know how to love Because of how he loved us. Therefore, Paul says, walk in love. Next one he says is walk in light. Walk in light. Um, He says something interesting there in verse 8. He says, he doesn't say you were in darkness and now you're in light. He says you were darkness. But more than that, he says now you are light. So walk as children of light. This thing, this is a short one because I... I'm at a loss really how to expand it. But Jesus does something. This is something that pops up all over the New Testament. Jesus does something in you that produces light. He's the light of the world, right? And he says that that light shines, that a a, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? That light shines. When God begins to conform us to the image of his son, he makes us lights that shine in dark places. Christians are supposed to be those who shine. Now, what we see, I think, in popular culture, on TV, whatever, is we, some, we think, some Christians think that that means we're supposed to take the spotlight to people and be like, hey, do you see this? Don't think that's what Paul's getting at. We have to expect, we are light. Okay, but... We are go- if we are light, we are going to expose. We're going to expose things within us, and we're going to expose things around us, right? Being a Christian will actually, if supposed to, we're called to expose those things that are wrong in the world. Meaning, when you leave here and get a job, that as a Christian, if you don't want to take part in improper business practices, you're not taking part in those, we'll expose them, Right? It means that you're going to expose racism when you encounter it. You're going to go against it. You're going to expose corrupt politics when you encounter it. That you might actually exit a conversation purposefully when someone is talking about someone else. That you might actually not laugh at a crude joke about someone you know or a racist joke. They're all around us. We have to expect that as light, the darkness rages against us. But there's a reason. I mean, there is a reason that being exposed is not a positive thing. Nobody wants to be exposed. Um, Light should be contagious, though. It's a positive thing that Paul talks about. If you read, I don't know if you've ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs. I just started reading it. But it's just like one after, it starts with like right after... um, 
right, 50, 60 AD. It just starts chronicling martyrs all through history. And one of the common themes, like almost every other martyr, what you hear about is, especially in the first couple of centuries of the church, as people were led to their death, what who people that also get killed with them were people that were like soldiers leading them to their deaths who are converted on the way to leading martyrs to their death. And so they end up professing Christ and then they end up getting killed, Right? There's this weird domino effect of the gospel that we see in the first couple centuries of the church. Light is supposed to be contagious. You know, we went to New City Fellowship, this church in inner city St. Louis. And the reason I love going to this church, because you've got this church that purposely put itself in the inner city where no one wants to be, right? Um, even the African-Americans there that, 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 are, that are still in that church will say, you know, most people, when you get money, you move out of here. Nobody wants to be here. But over the last 20 years, you've had people from the suburbs and all around St. Louis moving specifically into this place. Not to do anything specific, but just to live there. Like, there's no, like, set agenda. Like, this is exactly what we do. They're just there living their lives, raising their families, and being a part of the community. They're being light. And you think about that, there's no telling what... Maybe crime has been avoided or averted because of that. Who's been touched because of that? We're called to be lights. What more than that, if you're in Jesus, you are light. Right? It's not something that you have to like sign up for um, or figure out how to do, but if you're in Jesus, you are light. There's no formula to it. The last one here, quickly, is to walk in wisdom. Uh, Keller has a definition of wisdom. Tim Keller has a definition of wisdom. goes like this. Wisdom is competence with regards to the realities of life. I've told more than a few of you recently that I hate being an adult. And I think I'm realizing this because I don't have any wisdom. I don't know how to re- deal with anything of the realities of life. I wish they would just go away. Uh, like taxes. Um, that was a good one that came this morning. Um, taxes are evil. Um, here's the thing. Christianity is not just living by the rules. The reason wisdom is spoken of over and over again in the Bible is because it's not just knowing something well. A learned person can be an unwise person. You can know a lot of things and not know what to do with it. Right? Um, We see this maybe a lot with professors. I know when I was in college, I used to get cynical about certain professors because, like, I know they know the stuff, but they don't know how to teach it. Right? You know, we make that complaint a lot. Um... Just because you have a brain full of things doesn't know you how to, mean you ain't know how to use those things. It's not just living by the rules. It's living rightly. It's living blessedly. It's living wisely. Verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Um, I was making this comment the other day. You can, if you ever tried to like look at maybe this, this area of campus is a perfect example. Maybe you see somebody walking towards the UC from here and you think it's somebody you know. But if you sit there for a minute and watch them walk, you know whether or not it's them, right? Everybody kind of has their way of walking. You just watch somebody walk a few steps and you go, yep, that's him, right? Look carefully how you walk. It's supposed to look a certain way. Christians are those who actually take care to watch out and think about what they are doing. So often we miss that. Actually, supposed to think about what we're doing. What is it to walk in wisdom? He lists a few things here, and I just want to cover them real quickly. The first one is wise. Um, you're wise when you make the most of your time. Now, this is a hard one for me to talk about because I feel very inept at it. Um, how do I use my time? I don't know. Um, 
But Paul says here that we are wise when we make the best use of our time. We value time because time is part of God's creation. It's something that he made, something he's given us. But you see, we usually fall between two spectrums of time. Either time exhausts us, even in the, in, the, in the vein that we don't think we have enough of it, or it bores us in the vein that we think we have too much of it. Right? And we're usually swinging violently between those two poles. But there seems to be a med- middle way here. Look at verse 16. He says, make the best use of time in my translation. If you have the NIV, I think the NIV says um, redeem. The word there literally means redeem the time. Buy it back. Restore it. Put it to good use. And he says, because the days are evil. And that just sounds like Bible hocus pocus, right? But basically what he's saying is, don't live for the now. Life under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes said, is meaningless because life under the sun is living for the now. It's something that will pass away. Now, here's the thing. I'm prone to laziness. I'm prone to nothingness. What do I do when I have nothing to do? Nothing. And I love it um, too much. But you see, the workaholic can do the same thing. The workaholic can fill every single minute with something and not make the best use of the time. Because usually the workaholic is work living for the now and only the now. Redeem the time. Next one's a big one, but a lot of you are going to tune me out. But hear me out here. Stop getting drunk is what Paul says. And it's interesting, this walking metaphor that he's uh, been using. One of the, like, the hallmarks of being drunk is that you can't walk straight, right? Um, now, for some of you... Some of you, you just tune me out because you're like, I've never had a drink. I'm never going to have a drink. And so you tune this out. You're like, I don't struggle with this. But follow me here, whether you drink or not, okay? Paul says, don't get drunk because it's debauchery. Another Bible hocus pocus word, right? That word literally means reckless living. Don't get drunk because it's reckless. It wrecks your life, basically is what he's saying. Here's, here's, a, here's a working definition. The moment you get reckless with your thoughts, your words, or your deeds, you are drunk. And alcohol is not the only thing that takes you there. But, he says, be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean when I'm at the bar, I ask for a can of the Holy Spirit? What what does that mean? Um, Well, think about this. What does the Spirit primarily do? The primary work of the Spirit is to tell me who Jesus is. The primary work of the Spirit is to remind me who Jesus is, to remind me of what he's done for me, and to remind me that he is there. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, We have received the Spirit as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. What Paul means there is we know that we can cry out to God as our Father because of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's job. It's what He does in our life. In other words, the Spirit tells us who we are. Okay, now set that up against being drunk. Getting drunk means we don't know who we are. And the way alcohol plays in there, right, is we drink alcohol because we like to forget who we are, don't we? Um... Usually, we talk, we talk about drinking, you know, I just like to have a few drinks. It helps me, you know, loosen or lose my inhibitions. But what you're saying there is that when you don't have alcohol, you have, you're inhibited. That your normal life is inhibited for some reason, okay? 
The reason that we get drunk is we're completely insecure about who we are. And again, some happen to choose alcohol for that. But it doesn't have to be that. So I I think you can ask this question. I mean, I totally made this up, but I think this works. What is your drink? What is it that you use to help you check out? What is it that you use to help you lose your inhibitions because you see yourself as inhibited? Is it being known? Is it achieving? Is it food? That's a big one for me, sadly. Is it exercise? Hmm. You know, exercise gives us this great sense of control, doesn't it? But why do you exercise? Usually, forget who you are. We love being drunk. We love being out of control. Some of us happen to use alcohol. I think that's a fair point to make. The last one's this, give thanks. Wise living kind of sums all of this up, because he's even with the sexual immorality back uh, in verse 4, he talks about thanksgiving. Give thanks. How are we to do that? By submitting to others. We're to give thanks by making ourselves lower. Okay? We're to assume the position of being lower than someone else. Intentionally lower yourself, is what he said. A willingness to see the best in people instead of automatically assuming the worst. Guilty. I feel like I'm saying guilty is charged with every one of these. It's true. Um, the desire to serve over being served. Paul is saying the wise person lets that rule them. But here's the catcher. He ends it. By saying we do that out of reverence for Christ. How does that work? How does me submitting to other people, why is that out of reverence for Christ? The same way that he started the whole passage. Because he did the same thing for us. That's it. Philippians 2. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be too tightly grasped. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have a God who submitted himself to the insult of humanity so that he could save us. You look at all these rules, these strict views on alcohol and sexuality and behavior. You know, our culture is quick to throw out the... um, throw out the sexual strictness as obsolete, but they like to hold on to like the greed one. That's the one we should focus on. They're both there. We can look at all these things about behavior and we can be overwhelmed with how perfect God is, or we can the reverse be overwhelmed with how imperfect I am or my past or whatever. But you got to see why Paul says these things. Paul says these things because of the joy he gets from Christ. That's why he bookends every single thing he says with Jesus. The joy that he gets from Christ, but even more than that, the joy Christ takes in us. I just want to ask you, when it comes to the do's and don'ts, when it comes to living like a Christian, has that come anywhere close to your idea of Christianity? That what actually overrules and rules in my life is the love of God in my life bearing fruit and pouring in light in areas where I never wanted anyone to go. And that that in turn produces fruit. That how I live my life and who gets to tell me how to live it comes from joy. 
Not from slavish burden. But not just my joy in Him, but the everlasting joy that every page of Scripture has told me He takes in me. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, if we're honest, we we hate reading lists like these. Because it just brings shame and guilt. Because we know we fail at them every day. And we know that in some of them we feel like we have changed not an ounce. But throughout it all, you tell us that you love us. And we know that you've loved us because you gave yourself for us. And nothing can take that away. Nothing can take it back. And that because of what you've done for us, we can be assured that you will bring to completion that which you're doing in us now. Father, would you give us a joy for you? A joy for knowing you? A joy for knowing who we are called to be? And that from that joy, we would live for you. That we would be light that we would love one another, that we would pursue wisdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.